Welcome to Master Chat Podcast with Dean Derek Black. I'm very glad that you joined me. I created Master Chats as an extension to the augmented learning environment that we live in today. These chats exist to connect the AOD community to the broader disciplines discourse outside of their immediate surroundings. This platform is an ongoing discussion on the current and future of creative work, innovation, and what it takes to thrive in the 21st century and beyond. This week, I was able to catch up with a longtime friend, fellow educator, illustrator, and an all-around wonderful human being that I am so grateful for knowing. Please listen along as I speak with award-winning illustrator, Tanya Willis. It's a bit of a, a, a dance in between digital and, and hand-rendered. I and mean, one of the main things, I think, is brief itself and the research that will go into the brief, because especially with map making, you're looking at quite similar uh, requests, even though, even though they're different places. But what's exciting is getting deeply immersed into the research and inspiring yourself through that. So I do, do loads and loads of online digital research. When I get excited about something, I just keep drawing from the screen directly. And that does help edit things because I'm, it's easier to draw from visuals than it is from life as such. So, yeah, there's continual drawing. And I try to keep the life in the drawings because I know once I scan those in, which is the next stage, if I work on those digi digitally and simplify them, I've got to simplify them, but keep all that faults in them keep the wonkiness the poor proportion and anything that made the original drawing work and then chuck out all the others that didn't work yeah and, and not clean it up too much and not feel that now we're working digitally that something has to look finished I'm always trying to keep the kind of spontaneity and life in it but I, I, what I really like about the digital side as well is colour it's so easy to sample colour and look at colour palettes and make them up quickly and that's where digital beats analogue because <laughs> you're not wasting paint and mixing stuff up and doing little colour palettes and, ru and running out of paint as well which was the, wor the worst thing especially in Lantau as you could imagine standing knee deep in screwed up paper realizing the main color that you needed is now an empty tube of paint so when I moved to digital that was one of the great reliefs the fact you can produce work over and over again not physically run out of materials so yeah it's back and forth between digital and drawing Um, I make sure that I stay on the oldest form of CS possible. 
because whatever they've got to offer, I don't want it. <laughs> you know, I, I would, I'm considering going to Affinity Designer, actually, because I think, I don't know, it, it, it seems simpler and more direct. I just want to think of Photoshop or Illustrator and my scanner as a kind of steampunk machine. Just stick the drawings through them, and the drawings are everything. I don't want any of that software to do its own funky thing with my drawings. I know what I need to do is just colorize these drawings and give them um, a digital format to live in. But I don't use all the added benefits. I'm even a little bit resistant to, to um, brushes. I try to li limit my brushes because it's like a sweetie shop out there. There's way too many things you could do. And those could do's might drive your work, which is not your intention. Your intention should be in the drawings. For example, I won't, I'm not allowed to compose any images. I mean, when, when I say compose, I mean in the oldest sense of the word, no composition to be done on the computer. That must be done on a ripped up piece of old paper that you found on the floor. And because they're the best ones, you know, you scribble a thumbnail composition and that contains the proportions and the dynamics in the drawing that you must keep even when you've scanned it in and drawn it through. You know, the little thumbnail sketch really contains the energy. So if you were to compose that on a big screen, you can start moving things around, chopping them up too much. You have too much freedom digitally to kill your own work. <laughs> so it's best to just stay with bits of paper. I, I personally find, obviously everyone has totally different processes, but for me, it's to stay close to your flaws and your original intentions. That's, oh, that's interesting. It's, yeah, you do stuff intuitively over a period of time and you accumulate a process and you think, I wonder if other people do it like this or have I, have I just made this up and there must be a much better way of doing it. Um, and then you find out, yeah, actually everyone else does it this way. It's, I think it's quite common to a lot of illustrators I speak to. Um, I didn't consciously de design that that way of working, but having been trained as a fine artist and then I did my MA in illustration, I found that when you're working on imagery that's to be reproduced much smaller, under A4, for example, it needs to be a much more powerful, more graphic image than you would, as I, obviously there are many differences between fine art, but it, it's reason to exist in the first place. But, you know, fine artists are working on a much larger scale and people are invited to step close to those images and look at how they've been made and the material and the detail. Whereas the, the graphic nature of illustration is a priority and a craft that I needed to learn how to make images that looked great when you finally saw them on the page of a magazine and they were only one column wide and you'd thought they'd be much bigger than that and now they've been reduced to bitty and annoying and underwhelming and unengaging. So learning to work 
in between the designer's intention and your own intention took a lot of experience um, because I think young illustrators are not used to that. They look at their image on the screen at a certain size and think that looks great, but it's hard to know if you don't have a good relationship or a strong relationship and your designer is giving you information about how it will look on the page. Um, that can come as a shock. So cleaning up and tightening images was a priority. And that's what I started using the pen tool a lot more. And sometimes I think that very much deadens things, but it gives my work a crispness, which it was lacking when I used to paint and then send off these paintings to uh, the publisher who put them on a drum, drum roll scanner and scan them in. And you think, yeah, that looks really lame on the page now because I hadn't understood the process of um, the commissioning process and how to visualize how your work would look. So I needed to tighten it and crisp it up, keep it clean. I rely a lot on color for impact and um, I like to have that tonal and color dynamic to do a lot of the work because I don't use outlines or edges. I, the edges are color next to color and that edge can be clean or it can be broken and fuzzy, but more often than not, there's, there's a sharpness to it. So yeah, I, I work in Photoshop on top of the scans with a preconceived color palette that I've developed very, very loosely in, in Photoshop. And that's usually using the scanning composition as well and keeping to those proportions and dynamics. Yeah, and I, most of it, as I say, is is worked in, um, in pen tool in Photoshop, but more often now clients are asking, particularly with maps that will work for um, brochures and booklets, then they often want to blow them up. So now I've had to learn Illustrator, which I resisted for a long time. I could use Illustrator, but like a real klutz. Um, I'm a little bit better at it now. So I, a lot of the stuff is vector and scalable, but there's, there's even more of a Christmas to it, which is quite exciting and it, you don't get that horrible slight blur that you do when you put type on top of a, uh, a raster image. Mm -hmm. The image is crisp as the type edges now. Does that describe it? Well, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad it looks like that because the greatest fear is of losing that handmade edge. I want something to look like, for, for the purposes of reproduction and the context in which it will sit, I, I want that crispness and um, clarity, but I want it to have human wonkiness as well <laughs> because I, I think that's where the, the balance between the cleanness and the humanity is, is really crucial. So you can have humanity in content, you can have humanity in color, 
I think in the form, in the drawn form, if you're showing your fallibilities and your humanity in a very clean digital way, that's what I think I'm hoping for. And it may be that you just saying that is the first time I've realized it because again, you do a lot of stuff unconsciously because you don't have to explain yourself very often to people unless a client, I mean, often branding is the only place that I find I need to talk clients through what I'm doing because usually illustrators work with designers. So they're very accepting and unquestioning. Your art director knows your work, you produce it and they're like, good, that's what we hoped we'd get from you. But a client will often say, but why? Why did you do that? Why do you think those colours work? Couldn't we clean this up? So that's the only time when I have to talk to people about why I do things a certain way. But I don't, So I don't really know how I keep the wonkiness other than knowing when it's too clean, too crisp or too clinical, then it's not working. So I've got to go back and make some more wonky drawings. And, and maybe this is that's the scab thing as well isn't it the methodology is something because it must be quantified so it can be taught mm -hmm. but i think a lot of the best stuff is unconscious and it should stay that way if you shine too much light on it you might kill it I think, I'm sure everyone must have experienced this one, stuff like reading The Hobbit and spending ages going back to the end papers and looking to find out where we are now in the story. Uh, so you'd, you'd figure out, and I can't remember The Hobbit very well, so I can't quote this kind of thing, but I do remember being more obsessed about which mountain we were on, or are we down in that stream now? Where is this taking place? So I liked, I really loved little worlds, um, and little fantasy worlds. Um, another early memory is my grandma had one of those cork dioramas by our bed in the spare room. You, you remember the things you could buy in Hong Kong, the glass boxes with those amazing pagodas and little bridges and stalks all made of tiny carved cork. So there would be one of those by our bed, which I would look at every night as we fell asleep. I was absolutely fascinated by them and would imagine myself walking in and out of the pagodas and over the, the bridges. And yeah, it's just kind of little worlds is something that I I've always really loved, and I love tourist maps. I used to collect them and collect scarves with old 50s tourist maps on them. And uh, I'm, I'm a rubbish map reader, but I look, I'm reading the map all the time, but I'm not quite sure where we are because I've got distracted by some of the other things on it. And if I go on journeys, I have to have Google Maps on the whole time so I can see where we're going and what's nearby. It's like ADHD, I'm constantly distracted about what's down the other street. And then when I was working in Hong Kong, I was for the South China Morning Post, I had a regular slot there. And one of the, the food and drink editors, I can't remember her name now, she was fantastic there. She said, let's do maps for the vineyards and your work with all the wine writers. And it was such a thrill doing this. I sort of thought, this is it. I found the thing I really, really want to do. And this was 15 years ago. Maybe it was nearly 20 years ago. So it was pre this big surge in maps. But once I'd done four years working on these maps, you could sense there was a build-up. There was a real thrill about people creating and looking at maps. And it was going to be, it was going to happen as some kind of 
trend thing and it was understandable why because they're, they're just so enjoyable and they're the perfect complement to the travel industry that was developing and the travel bloggers and like all the travel sections in magazines and the, the art directors could see that this was a great visual companion to these kind of stories because it was photos weren't kind of doing it photos looked too generic if you're talking about travel and yeah that once I got there I, I stayed there <laughs> in the maps armchair traveler you never get to see the places that's that's the saddest thing but it's great for research because you feel like you've traveled at the end of day one's visual research <laughs> this is a big guilty secret because i'm working with two partners who are great sketchbookers they actually one of my partners in, in um, the good ship illustration she has a hashtag called walk to see where people go draw every day and go and walk to see draw from life and i'm like the yeah i'm like the, the, the bad partner i i draw from my research imagery i don't often go out and draw from life i should do a lot more and when I arrived in Hong Kong in 1994, I kept thinking, this place is blowing my mind. I should be just sitting in the streets with a sketchbook drawing. Um, I'm losing a great opportunity. Look at all these people drawing, sitting in corners, in busy streets, watching the world go by. But when I left Hong Kong, all my work was about Hong Kong. So I'd never actively gone and consciously drawn it, but somehow it had all percolated through and everything that I did was about Hong Kong and the, the place and the scenario. So I, I felt really relieved. It's like I didn't go and sketchbook, but it did still end up making a huge body of work that was almost entirely about Hong Kong. So that when I moved back to the UK, people would say, do you want to exhibit some work? And I kept saying, it's not really relevant to the UK. I haven't got a single thing that doesn't relate to Hong Kong. So I think people come to their goals in a roundabout way. I'm trying to let myself off the hook for not going out and drawing from life. Partly because I think uh, it's the kind of thing I will do on holiday and when I've got time, but most of the time I'm sat in front of the computer working on briefs and drawing from very specific research requirements. But what I do like is to make sure it's playful. I don't use a sketchbook because it gets too precious and they're difficult, fat sketchbooks are difficult to scan as well because of the gutter, um, just from a technical point of view. So I use all the, I reuse all the documentation in our house that hasn't got anything on the back. I bulldog clip it to a board and I draw from that. And the best drawings usually come on something that might have a shopping list as well. Because the less precious you make your drawing process, it seems to be the better the outcome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I don't use sketchbooks because it seems too theatrical. Like, hello, here's a sketchbook we're going to draw.
That's exactly it. That's amazing. So as a, as a typographer, which, you know, designers, we always regard as, well, illustrators always regard designers as much neater, more higher functioning beings than illustrators. So the fact that you've gone to the bulldogged pile of old paper as a, a new version of Sketchbook amazes me. But I, th I think it's brilliant. That's the way things really work, to get your true creativity unfiltered, unselfconscious, full of playfulness and enjoyment. You have to take away or that, that self-consciousness that a ready-made book like A Moreskin kind of confers on the process. You just think the whole time, I'm not worthy. I'm going to do this terrible drawing of a boat that I can see out the window. I'm going to ruin this brilliant sketchbook. So yeah, getting down to the rubbishy bits of paper. Like I put a picture on my Instagram a couple of days ago. I drew these pigs that I needed to include in a food directory. And it was, I was so pleased with the pictures of the pigs, but there was all this other calculation down the side of it and my shopping list. But I thought it was a great example of how to get the best done of yourself without worrying but I'm very kind of anti-perfectionist as we were talking earlier about the new generation of broadcast media that's going to come out of this situation you don't have to be perfect to do it you've got permission it's all right get on with it any way you like Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think as an older illustrator, who, when I left fine art, I went and did, the, as I mentioned before, I did my MA in illustration, but I didn't know what illustration was when I got to the MA. And because it was an MA, no one talked about the nuts and bolts of the industry. That was too pedestrian. They were talking about kind of opening up your creative vision, but I kept wanting to say, yeah, but how, and what does a client expect from you? Does this pass as illustration? Um, you know, what do I need to be to be a functioning illustrator? But I'd kind of missed the boat. I really wish I'd done a BA in graphic design or illustration first. Nevertheless, it all worked out. But I was so concerned with the industry that I forgot to develop my personal vision because that's what the previous fine art course had been about. So I threw all of that away, started focusing on career. And it's only much later in the career you start thinking, well, yeah, I really loved punk and all that kind of thing at the time. Why didn't I use that in my work? Why didn't I think I was enough and who I was was interesting enough to become a creative voice? I thought those things weren't relevant to the matter in hand. They were not good for 
building a career as a professional illustrator. Whereas I look back now and think everyone with all their kind of um, special interests or, you know, whether you, for example, love the pearly kings and queens of old Cockney London, well, get deep into it and draw pearly kings and queens and obsess about it and make all your work about it because that's what makes an individual. But I didn't know that at the time and I really wish I did. I don't, um, I don't know, it just took time and experience and confidence. I've heard a lot of people say, uh, well, again, the, the, the illustrators that I've teamed together with, we've sort of discussed that bit where you leave college and you so desperately need to pay the rent or pay for your studio. You'll do anything anyone says. <laughs> Would you draw this, draw that? Fine, I, if I can draw it well enough for you, I'll draw it. And then you set sail in a different direction to the one you intended because you're just saying yes to other people's requests. You're not saying yes to, to staying true to your own vision. Or perhaps you don't even know what your own vision is at that point. You're still trying to work it out, but you're so concerned with the day-to-day -day life of not being a failure and, and earning money and surviving as a, as a creative that you forget to think about yourself. But I think if you, if you can get to the stage where you're fortunate enough to be generating enough work to keep a roof over your head, you start to think, well, how do I differentiate myself on this mass of other illustrators? Because if your work is talking to everybody, you're talking to no one. So you need to look for niches and independent markets that, that define you as someone specific that people will say, oh yeah, that, that person's work would be really good for this project. So you need to be signaling yourself as someone very specific. And I guess during my time in Hong Kong, that just came about. I can't say I had the privilege to consciously do that, but there is a realization you can't be all things to all men. You have to figure out who you are and what you want to do. Well, thanks, Derek. I really enjoyed it too. Um, it's been great to discuss things <coughs> that you only discuss in your own head and actually try to articulate them. That's been quite an interesting process for me. And it's been, yeah, inspirational looking into these things. I wish your students all the best working at home, away from their tutors in, these, in this new kind of teaching environment. But um, yeah, hopefully that will give them more opportunity to play and become less self-conscious because that's the best way to creativity. Thank you, Tanya, for sharing these insights on your creative career. I've truly enjoyed our time together, and I think our audience has as well. For more content like this, please subscribe to our account to make sure that you continue to receive our future episodes. If you're joining this podcast from either iTunes or Spotify, you're only getting to hear a sample segments of these interviews, as the rest of this content is reserved for our students, staff, and alumni at the Academy of Design.